and I'm wearing my shirt for just the occasion. We're going to talk about Mike. We're going to talk with Mike Edison, the man who wrote this book, Sympathy for the Drummer, Why Charlie Watts Matters, and he matters a lot. Um, yeah, so let's see. Talked about the book already, so we get that covered. Um, yeah, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in. And uh, somebody's making a comment. Los in the house. Okay, Los, good to see you, brother. Um, thanks for tuning in. I also want to say thanks for tuning in last week when I had Robin Flans on the show with um, Gary Grimm and Rob Wallace and Joe Bergamini from Hudson Music. And Gary, of course, was Jeff's drum tech for a while. And our special guests that joined us, Steve Gadd, <clears throat> Rick Murata, and Vinnie Caliuta. So thanks for tuning into that. That was a great chat. Robin is a, a longtime friend, and uh, I just can't say enough about that book. Um, it's about time, Jeff Bacaro, the man, and his music. So definitely get that book. But without further ado, I'm going to bring on Mike Edison, the author of this book that we're going to talk about, Sympathy for the Drummer. So uh, hang on for Mike. He's quite a, he's quite a fun guy. All right. Okay, Mike. Here we are, buddy. All right. Everybody, right. Mike Edison. Say hello to Mike Edison. What's up, guys? The yeah. world is watching. Look at this. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Mike and I, I'll just say Mike and I spoke on the phone the other day for the actually for the first time actually on the phone, which is kind of funny. We thought it would be a good idea to actually, yeah. <laughs> you know, have a conversation before we did this. Old school and, uh, on the phone. That's right. It was cool, man. It was great. We got to really shoot the shit about a lot of cool stuff. So, yeah, man, like I say, you know, the best thing about uh, writing a book uh, is, is, you know, making new friends, cats like you and, you know, make, make it a good trip. Thank you. Likewise too. I just want to say, Mike, you know, I loved your book so much. I bought two copies so I could read it a second time. <laughs> I just... All right. All right. I was hoping that joke. Yeah, which everybody away. would. <laughs> yeah, everybody buy it twice. Buy, buy two copies so you can read it twice is what okay. I said. Too early to, too early to plug it. Uh, I'll totally um, sign copies for Christmas. If anybody wants to sign a copy, just private message me and we'll, we'll, we'll get you sorted out. Oh, that's cool. Well, we got a lot of folks on already saying hello and, uh, Hello, Michael Leisure, my fellow lefty. <laughs> One of my bandmates is on here, Neil Porter. Hi, Neil. He's the singer and guitar player in the band. Grand Theft Audio, that is, my band. Mm -hmm. A little plug to my band. But uh, I made a couple of notes, Mike, which I've been doing lately because I don't want to leave any stone unturned while we have this conversation today. Oh, so Lord. We're going unfiltered. <laughs> we are going unfiltered. <laughs> <laughs> You you may come to regret this yet, John. No, we, we were unfiltered. We were unfiltered the other day too, which is pretty funny. Um, no, man, this is great. I'm so glad we're able to do this. And just talking about the book because that's what we're going to talk a lot about today. Um, when when did you decide to write this book? Like how how long ago? How far back? You know, I always tell people uh, they say, "How long did it take you to write?" And I say, 45 years." <laughs> I mean, in the middle, I wrote another five books and made a bunch of records and stuff. But I think probably right when I started playing the drums when I was a teenager, you know, I uh, started playing along uh, with, with the Stones and a lot of other people too. I, uh, I was lucky I got into Chuck Berry and some things really early on. Um, but, you know, along with uh, Jimi Hendrix and Black Sabbath and later the Ramones and all these things he played with. But the Charlie Watts 
was a code that could not be cracked. I mean, Led Zeppelin was something you could learn to play that. You could learn to play those songs. But yeah. the Charlie thing was just like opening up hi-hats on off beats and then the end of three. And it, it, like what it just had this groove to it. And he meant so much to the band and to my personal philosophy about how to approach rock and roll. Um, you know, I've been cogitating on it for a very long Long, long time, you know. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I yeah. notes on like everything, you know, like on cocktail napkins and stuff collected over the years. Uh, just That's about cool. Charlie, you know, and like you know, listen over and over again to these things that just don't really make conventional sense. You know, the things like yeah. that, you can't yeah. be taught these things. You have to just like live it, learn it, breathe it. There's poetry and jazz in it. That's why I say if you go on YouTube and you say how to play like Charlie Watts, you don't find very much. You know, you will find right. literally 10,000 examples of some somebody playing Tom Sawyer flawlessly in their bedroom, you know, <laughs> or, or, or the John Bonham catalog. There's tons of that. Yeah. Okay. But there's nothing, no Charlie Watts because it's too hard. It's, it's too deceptive. Yeah, no, I, 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 I totally agree, man. I think, and you know, as you, as you well know, he would consider all the things you're talking about mistakes. Like he, he's, and that's not just forced humility, you know, that's, that's, he really thinks that like, it's just all a sort of happy accident for him. The stuff that, that we think is so great. He'll go, I don't know. I just, you know, I did that. It was, I didn't mean to do that. And it just happened that way, you know? Yeah. But that's part of the beauty is the happy accident, yeah. the, the beauty mistakes. And uh, you know, some of them are mistakes. I mean, I, I mean, sure. And some of it's just wrong. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, absolutely. You yeah. sat down and you're listening to this, I mean, wrong by a conventional sort of sense of even meter. And, you know, we listened to the beginning of Hang Fire, just that like eight, two bars of music, right? Yeah. Like, bah, 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 bah. like, so many times, Kenny Aronoff, who did the little musical transcriptions uh, in the book, is a favor for me. And he was just like, man, you know, no one would ever let me play the drums like this. It speeds up like within the first four 16 notes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. And, but it makes it, but everybody falls together. Boom. Right. And it does. Right. It, you know, it, it's just, just the best. And yeah. that's it. My, and, you know, with, with Charlie too, you know, <laughs> it's so recognizable. And that's very few drummers have been able to accomplish that. It's, you know, it's, it's partly it's the way he was recorded, especially on the later records, but it's really just the style. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, that's Charlie Watts. That means mm -hmm. songs. Yeah, yeah, very absolutely. Hard to do. Very few drummers have achieved that. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to just say too. He, um, you made a great, a great example of that. But I mean, in terms of mistakes, when I started playing drums, very similar to you, we have very similar backgrounds. Like I, I was self-taught, and I just listened to their records. And I used to listen to to get your yeah yeahs out, the live mm -hmm. version of Little Queenie, oh. where Charlie starts off on the one and the three. He starts off, you know, he, the beats turned around, which, and I learned to play this, the song that way I air drummed along to it. And when I finally got a set of drums and learned to sit down behind the drums and play it, I That's played cool. that song, that first couple of measures, I guess, where he plays it until he finally Keith or somebody turns it around to where he's playing. Well, the two does. He doubles up on the bass drum. He plays, he's, I mean, he's got it flopped where he's playing the bass drum on the two and the four. And he just sort of plays it twice throughout the two, three and turns it around. But you know, it's crazy. That's not the only show they recorded for that record. I mean, they're right. You know, but that's the one they decided to use. I know. I know. <laughs> I, I learned that later. I mean, as a kid, I had no idea they had multiple versions of that show, you know, of, of you know, recordings of that from different shows. And they, and they chose that one. That's the one that, yeah. And of course, uh, you know, not not too tangentially, the beginning of Start Me Up, which is like the famous, most famous, like cock up, you know, in history. And it's fantastic. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah, I've read like, like page long explanations, you know, like college level you know, shit about like what happens <laughs> in the first few bars to start me up. And it's, it's very cool. It's very, very cool. Yeah. It's, it's, and he, you know, and it's in typical Charlie fashion, he never played it the same way again either. You know, he, he pretty much he'll do those things and then never ever be either try or, or even want to, you know, replicate it you know, oh, yeah, you know in the moment of going down the rabbit hole with you know the beginning of star me up and like looking at various live performances you know it became such a big hit came to like you know a big you know corporate rock hit of the time so a lot of times it was synced with pyro so yeah, that's right yeah that's so right so you better get it right because you know right. you probably get a dirty look from mick you know if the flash pots go off and you're off the beat or something so right. <laughs> it sort of changes everything but it is yeah. different every time for sure <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. He came when he came and visited Zildjian when I was working at Zildjian uh, in 2006. Um, this guy that works, he still works there, Paul Francis. He's he's the guy that that uh, designs the symbols there. Old friend of mine. And we took Charlie on a tour of the factory. He wanted to come and see the factory. It's a, it's a funny story to have ever told you this, but it was literally the night before they were playing at Gillette Stadium. And I'd invited Charlie for going on 20 years at that point to come any, you know, every year I'd invite him when they came through town and it was for one reason or another. Sometimes their shows are on a weekend. Sometimes he just, his wife was with him and he had no interest in, you know, in doing that. So anyway, it's literally, I was with him in his dressing room until the, the point where they were taking him on stage. Like, they kept saying, Charlie, you know, 20 minutes, 10 minutes, five minutes, time to go. So we're walking out. And he turns to me and he says, I think I want to visit Zildjian tomorrow. Can, can you make that happen? And I said, absolutely, I'll make it happen. He said, okay, I'll ring you in the morning and ring me, whatever. Past 12 o'clock, I said, that's great. It, you know, and I, and I still doubted, honestly, like as I'm driving home that night after the show and I get up in the morning, I'm like, you know, something's going to happen. He's not going to be able to do it. But he did come. Anyway, that's a long, that's a long story longer. But he, he did come. And Paul Francis, who... Um, took him on the tour, you know, basically took him around to show him the factory. He asked Charlie about the intro to start me up because his, I guess his band was playing it at the time. And I'm thinking, Oh no, what are you doing? Don't, don't ask him that question. And he, he just, he just went, I don't know. Like he said, he said something like Paul, I, Paul's question was something like, can I ask you a question? And I'm thinking, Oh no, don't, don't, don't do this. And he, he said, uh, when, you know, the beginning of start me up, will you do that? And you could tell Charlie's heard that question probably yes. about, 50,000 yeah. times. And he just kind of went, I, I don't know. I don't, it was a, it was a mistake. I think he said that. He said, I think it was. Oh, it was definitely know. a mistake. It was just, yeah, he, it I, just started wrong. You got started off the wrong beat and you know, yeah. when it happens, you know, you're, yeah. you know, I mean, the worst is when you're on stage and it happens because you couldn't hear it or something. And then it's really hard to turn it around. I mean, if yeah. you, if, if you got the beat backwards, it's without actually stopping the song and, you know, <laughs> counting it in again, it's a, it's it's trick could be tricky if everybody's not paying attention. There's this fantastic bootleg. Uh, it's the night uh, the New Barbarians played, and Keith had to play the benefit concert in Toronto. Uh, you know, does you know um, his his you know slap on the wrist for you know, you know his heroin bust, um, and, and they played that. And so the New Barbarians played. You know, his band with Ronnie, and then the Stones played afterwards, and they played a set. And the bootleg's called Blind Date, and so you, you could find it. It's on the internet, yeah. and they do a version of Star Star. Okay, that that's the polite title because I promised yes. you we're keeping this PG thirteen today, and it, it, it's a disaster. And I I, I, I 
there's a footnote in my book that's about this big about it because it's just, I was obsessed with it because they come in backwards. Mick's supposed to come in on the one, like where goes, there's a little Chuck Berry riff and everybody falls on the one and the song starts yeah. on yep. the one and somehow they miss it. And the whole thing, someone changes the chords like in the wrong place. And so one guy's moved up to the fourth and the other guy's still on the one and Chuck doesn't know what, uh, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't know what to do. And, uh, Charlie's just sort of vamping and this just keeps going on and on. And then Keith starts to try to come in, but it's in the wrong key because Bill's already, you know, moved, moved on. And it just, yeah. it's, it's the worst. Like if a bar band played like this, you would walk out on it. But yet somehow after about 16 bars of this, it's a mess. And really everybody should look this up. You know, star, star. Yeah. One day they finally turn it around. And when it comes together, it's like, it's like the skies open and all of a yeah, sudden yeah. the world's greatest rock and roll band again. But man, I mean, it, it sounded like the worst amateur bar band for about five minutes there. It sounded like I, a bunch I, of high school kids who just couldn't find the one. And then, you know, boom, you know, Thunderbolts from Mount Olympus, the best thing of all time. I'm going to look for that. I, I've seen that. I've, I've got so many boots and I, I'll find that one. And I was just going to say, you probably have this particular one as well. There's a live in Perth, Australia. Mm-hmm from 73 when Mick Taylor was still in the band mm-hmm. and they, they do a version of Gimme Shelter that is exactly the same thing. It starts off, Charlie obviously can't hear Keith. It's right, so, that's the thing. Somebody can't hear somebody. Somebody can't hear somebody. So he's he's not hearing him through his Gigondo monitor and Charlie's playing it on the one and the three for the whole first verse, maybe even through the chorus and part of the second verse, he's playing on the one and the three. And, and you can hear Keith trying to, Sort of turn it around, but it's just yeah. not because they can't it's hear really it. It's hard to do. You got to yeah. find that little crack. And but it's great. They don't stop the song, and you know, which right. You know, okay, let's do it again. Yeah, before you know, like I you know, tell all my my students, what comes after four? One. <laughs> right. And that's it. And that's yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so so you started off as a drummer, and uh, yeah. And and Charlie was an influence, obviously a, a big yeah, influence. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, I, you know, I love the Rolling Stones. I mean, I'm just old enough that uh, Brown Sugar was still on the radio a little bit. I mean, it wasn't really, it wasn't at the time when it came out, but it was still lingering. Um, you know, on the radio, it just didn't go away. This is AM radio I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. WABC in New York, WABC <laughs> and uh, you know, in WABC Top Forty AM radio before we all switched over to uh, the FM rock stations, uh, which in New York were WPLJ and WNEW FM. Um, but but it was definitely there in the. I mean, the Stones were just like you know the thing. And I, I love the Rolling Stones, and you know, I love rock and roll. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. What is it that spoke to me about about them? I mean, first, you know, you got Mick Jagger, who's larger than life. It's all very, very sexy. And it's all about sex. I mean, let's be honest. It's Playing the drums is about sex. Being in a rock and roll band is about sex. Sure. Yeah. Sex, 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 sex. That's what it's all about. And, you know, it really, really speaks to you, you know? I mean, I remember, and um, I, I uh, wrote about this in um, another book I wrote, You Are a Complete Disappointment. It's uh, kind of a childhood memoir. But I remember getting the copy of Sticky Fingers at a garage sale with the zipper <laughs> on the cover. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, keeping it PG-13 for you, John. But I said, <laughs> this means someone somewhere is, is having a good time. You know? <laughs> it's, it spoke of a world that, you know, way beyond my my, my own, you know, you know, 13-year-old <laughs> periphery. But it, but it was hot, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, I know, man. Yeah, that that's... That, they had some pretty controversial album covers. I mean, that controversial definitely album covers. Have you actually listened to the words to Brown Sugar? Oh, oh my yeah. God. It's like, well, yeah. sex and drugs and slavery. No way does this get by the radar these days. I mean, it's the kitchen sink right. of please that song. I mean, it's just, you know, everything, you know, so naturally it went to number one. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
And, you know, I mean, and, and, and <coughs> all, all serious too. I mean, you're right. I mean, it's the, the lyrics are, are like, you know, you, it, you'd be, I mean, they still played on the radio, but you'd be, you'd be hard pressed nowadays to, to uh, write a song like that, so to speak. But having sex with slave girls. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. much of Jagger's credit, he, he slurs half of it, which, you know, which was great too. I'm, you know, one great thing about Mick Jagger too, um, is that he understands that vocals are a rhythm instrument. He knows how to sing and re- really punch the rhythm out. And I think he's so lucky to have a drummer like Charlie, who also gets that, to really sell, you know, the singer. I mean, Charlie yeah. knows yeah. that his responsibility is to the song and to put the singer over. Because Mick's obviously a great frontman, and he's a very, very, very good singer, of course. But without Charlie, you know, it's really hard to put over, you know, a message like that, you know? Yeah. It becomes yeah. rock and not rock and roll. And that's why I always say, you know, I mean, children can rock. You know, you know, kids with skateboards rock, Metallica rocks. Sorry, I got to be careful because you're like an industry guy. And I don't know who you're friends with, but you know, but the Rolling Stones roll. You know, it's not the Rocking Stones; it's the Rolling yeah. Stones. Yeah. You know, Frank Sinatra rolls, Billy Holiday rolls, adults roll. That's the sex. You know, that's the sexy part of the equation, um, and that's Charlie yeah. Watts. It doesn't work without that. Absolutely, and talk about talk about like the perfect <laughs> drum part for that song too. You know, you can't imagine. Any other, like, knowing that song as we know it, you can't imagine playing it any other way than riding the floor, Tom, during the verses and all those cool things that he does in that song that, like, I, I think that I mean, make that song what it is. It's amazing. Know? And, and it, you know, like, all, and like I, you know, I say in, in, uh, uh, in the book as well, you know, there's, like, not one Stone song that ends at the same tempo in which it begins. This is like a myth that Charlie is like some sort of metronome, you know? And uh, I say, again, keeping it PG-13, uh, you wouldn't uh, want to make love to someone, you know, who did it like a metronome. Why would you want a drummer who played like one? You know, you got to speed up a little bit every once in a while. Sometimes you even slow down, but you got to swing it, you know? You don't, you know, it's, it's, it's just not by the numbers. And listen to Brown Sugar, it ends, there. It, he pushes it through the choruses, and there's a part or two where the maracas emerge, and i very big on the maracas, as you know. Yeah, yeah. Flash and Shelter and Street Fighter Man, you know, and obviously I'm a big Bo Diddley fan, and this whole sound was built on the maracas. But when it just comes in, I think it's like after uh, the, the saxophone solo, yeah. I, I think. But, but it just sort of, the whole thing just sort of off. It's that bridge from, yeah, from after the sax solo into the third verse, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It just, it's like pouring gas on the fire. It's fantastic. I, yeah. Maracas are amazing, and, and for that exact reason, like you say, the way they can they can add this this sense of energy, just, you know, even without the tempo necessarily speeding up that many clicks, but it's just that there's all of a sudden a sense of like power yeah, and energy really there. Yeah. 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 That's why I talk about in sympathy for the drummer too. Don't be disrespecting the maracas player or the tambourine player. No it, way, man. You, you know, we used to always have a test when I was in high school. This is one thing I got from, you know, I was kind of an outlier and that I liked a lot of song music and uh, a lot of things that weren't really popular amongst my, my, my peers, my you know, 15 year old buddies uh, at the time, but I listened to a lot of Motown and soul music. And I used to tell people who wanted to play in the band, here, here's a tambourine. Let's see how you do with this before you even touch your bass. And if you couldn't play the tambourine, I kind of didn't want you in my basement. Y- you know, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. The thing. it's the rhythm, it's the feeling, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's able to swing it and to swing between the notes. To um, play it right. Absolutely. And, I mean, and maracas are really hard to play accurately. Oh, yeah. the time, as is the tambourine. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, my friend Penny Lane says rated R is okay here. She's letting <laughs> you know that. 
Um, yeah. So yeah, you know, can... you, know, you know, Penny, it's a slippery slope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you let one f bomb fly, and then the floodgates open. <laughs> well, you know, I've been known to work blue, so. <laughs> Yes, you have. Um, but, you know, another great example of, like you say, too, I, and I, I've always kind of, you know, I, I do think Charlie has overall, I think he has really good time in terms of, um, yeah, I, I, I know what you're saying in terms of, the, you know, the push and pull aspect of it. And, and he and he talks about that a lot. But Honky Tonk Woman, I think, is a great example of a song that starts, you know, over here somewhere. And, you know, it's by the time they finish, it's there. It's like a horse race. All these things from shelter. Yeah. I mean, you can just yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, just check it. And you know, I mean, this is what great guys do. I mean, I mean, John Bonham does it. I mean, I mean, Keith Moon. I mean, it's just another story. It's just sort of like you know, he starts in fifth gear and you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, and you're off to the races. But um, someone pointed out to me, Cashmere actually slows down in the middle. He pulls it back and significantly yeah. slows it down during the chorus or the verses before it gets back to the chorus. That's really hard to do. You know, without yeah. making it sound like it's dragging, you know, it's, it's kind of very subtle. It's very cool. Yeah. Bonzo was the master at that playing behind the beat kind of thing to where he could just rein it all su- back. And yeah. I'm always surprised, you know, Charlie and the guys, they always say, they always say they're not really big Led Zeppelin fans. You know, they're very careful to say they get on great with them as, you know, as blokes and, you know, and they're good guys. And they're obviously friends with Jimmy Page. And um, they always say it's like, just like, you know, like a truck, you know, just barreling down the highway. And I don't really see Led Zeppelin that way. Because to me, even when they're really, really, really rocking, they don't sound like they're in a hurry. They, mm. you know, it, it sounds very measured, very in the groove, you know, Bonham's got that thing. It, it's, it's weird. Like Charlie plays, he's got the great relationship where he's kind of chasing Keith, you know, he sort of taught the bass player and the uh, drummer play together and they play in the pocket. And obviously in the who, that's not the case. And Rolling Stones is sort of Keith and Charlie of a thing. Um, right. <clears throat> and Bill Lyman, who I think is one of the most underrated musicians, uh, you, know, you know, ever to be, to be in this game. Um, but the weird thing about Zeppelin is I, I think John Bonham's playing with the riffs and he has this relationship with Jimmy Page, but he does keep it in the pocket with John Paul Jones and he gets to live in both worlds. Yeah. You know, yeah. in this weird sort of way that makes it work. You know, it's everybody's got their own formula. I mean, you got to have a thing, right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, I, that's, that's, a, that's a good, that's a good analogy too, because I, I think Bonzo was just such a disciplined drummer. You know right. what I mean? He was just, yeah. 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 For a guy that was, that was not necessarily a, a trained school drummer, but he had so much discipline in his playing and then, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, but he had chops, to, you know, I mean, uh, I, I mean, you know, yeah. the Gene Krupa isms, the Louis Belson stuff, I mean, even the Bloody Rich stuff, you know, to Max whatever, Roach, whatever too, point, yeah. a lot of Max, and, yeah. you know, and, you know, I talk about drum solos for a moment in my book, because I don't think there are any good ones. <laughs> well, I say, what I did, there are three good drum solos in the history of the sport. And I'm going to give you Wipeout in Safaris, right? Because it's the, right? Because it's the only one everyone can play on a lunch counter. Okay. Uh, uh, and I love Joe Morello and Time Out. And yeah. one of the great things about the drum solo on Time Out is that the piano keeps vamping. It's not just open space yeah, and drums. Yeah, yeah. It's not like the other guys go off to have a smoke. And I say, you know, when people play a guitar solo, it's not like people leave the stage either. And I think I'd like to hear more of that. Um, mm. You know this track, Soulful uh, Drums, you know this one by Brother... Uh, uh, Brother Jack, the organ, organ player, Brother Jack McDuff. I, I don't know it, no. Same thing. It's like very opening up, but they're keeping the marking yeah. time on the yeah. Hammond and stuff. And then the other would be Moby Dick, which everyone loves. And it's yeah. taken right from, I mean, a good part of it's taken right from Max, Max Roach. I mean, you can yeah. hear all the influences. And, you know, that's a big, obviously, um, yeah. on a company drum solo and kind of the height of the art of stadium 
you know, drum solos, and, but a lot, a lot of drum solos are just, you know, gimmicks. And, you know, at that yeah. era, you could just set something on fire and people would, would be very excited. Would you, right. would <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've seen it. <laughs> you have to. It, 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 was, it was the era of the drum solo. Yeah, it was. It was like that, you know. Yeah, and they were long, you know, and I, I used to love drums. So, I mean, I still do, but I can appreciate them. But yeah, yeah I'm a sort of art form, you know, and you know, I'm not beyond coming home, like, you know, a little bit tipsy and going on YouTube and watching Buddy Rich or, you know, or whatever. But once you've seen one Buddy Rich drum solo, I mean, where are you going to go from there? Yeah, I know. And it's fantastic. Know. It is fantastic. But at some point, it's a parlor trick. You know, at uh, some point, it's not even very musical. I love musical drum solos. I mean, you know, I like Louis Belson. I like watching that. I love watching Chick Webb. I love uh, Joe, Joe uh, Jones, both of them, uh, Philly Joe and, and Joe Jones. Yeah. You know, yeah. a, lot, a lot of stuff. Gene Group I could watch all day. But a drummer's only, you know, they say a, a band is only as good as a drummer. But I think that sword cuts both ways. You know, a drummer without context you know, sure. yeah, it's tough. Yeah. No one ever said to me, none of my girlfriends ever said, Hey, come, come on over, bring over your drums and play a song for me. <laughs> you know, I never <laughs> set up my drums out someone's window to try to pitch woo and serenade somebody, you know, out of context. It's a, it's a tough, tough thing. It is. No, absolutely. It is. <laughs> it is. Oh, that's too funny. Um, so talking about, since we're talking about the stones, and by the way, I loved your video earlier today. I had to, <laughs> oh, I had to take my oh, guy oh. out too. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. I got to thank my buddy D Pop, uh, drummer extraordinaire and a great man, a great friend of mine, D Pop, uh, a New York legend who's played um, with uh, the Gun Club. He's in the Bush Tetras, a uh, very famous no way band from New York who are fantastic and uh, kind of an open secret. He played on some pretty well known Clash songs, Uncredited, and he was oh, no in Fortunes. And uh, he plays in my band, the Edison Rocket Train, all the time, and a great guy. But And uh, he uh, worked up at Steve Maxwell's and had a nice time with uh, Charlie Watts, you know, talking about. China symbols, of course, because you know. <laughs> that's yeah. <what> exactly. That's cool. I don't know where I got this. I think somebody gave me this a long time ago, and I used to keep it in my old office and at work, and now I have it here in my little home office. And just to yeah. keep it real, I got this guy too. It doesn't it doesn't bobble, but just to you know, it's not it's not all rock twenty four seven around here. <laughs> okay, I'm impressed. I'm very impressed. That's cool. Well, I was going to ask you, Mike, made a couple of notes here, uh, questions. Um, what are some of your favorite, um, not your absolute, but like, what are some of your favorite Stones records? And and part B of that would be like, so, you know, songs that you feel Charlie is best represented in. Like if you, if you were going to tell somebody, um, you know, someone who said, ah, Charlie doesn't do much for me. What What songs would you recommend they listen to to really kind of, well, uh, I like Charlie. I'll tell you what, first, I definitely Exxon on Main Street to me is like the pinnacle of the culture, not just the Rolling Stones. It's like, you know, it's like the invention of cubism or something. I mean, it really is kind of like a shift in the way they play gospel and country and rock and roll. And, you know, like, yeah, it's yeah. just absolutely, you know, the apex of the art form. I should say uh, on my website, mikeedison.com, easy enough, there are playlists. Uh, there's Spotify playlists, and there are four of them. One is, it's like a little blues 101, but I think it's got some surprises. It includes uh, Flamingo and Walking Shoes, some of Charlie Watts' early favorite songs, and goes through Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf and Don Covey and stuff they cover. And then I move, kind of move through some of my favorite Disco Stone songs and some of the mm -hmm. live stuff. And uh, there are four separate playlists. I think uh, people will be surprised what I chose. And the great thing, you know, on Exxon Main Street, so you listen to it, it's wonderful. And I was just listening to say, Rip This Joint 
which uh, is God, I think is the very fastest song that they ever, ever, ever recorded. I mean, it's I would cool. say so. Yeah. And it's great on, you know, on the record. It's just this swing and jump and jive. And another really sleazy song. It's, uh, you know, you know, about the, you know, the president of the United States and drugs and sex, uh, yeah. you know, the theme they'd come back to, you know, on some girls. Uh, but when you hear them doing it live, like after, like um, if you watch them in ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones, this is the thing. This is the document. This is like, if you're in a rock and roll band and you watch this movie, it kind of makes you rethink what you're doing. And like, really, maybe I should just quit right now because it's so untouchably good. And even after writing a book about Charlie Watts, the Rolling Stones and absorbing all this, I, I turned it on the other night for the first time in a while. You know, and I'm just, I was just dumbfounded at how yeah. freaking good they were at that moment. You know, I mean, if Richard Nixon was paying attention, he would have put them in jail. He should have. He should have put a stop to the whole freaking thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was absolutely, you know, rock and roll as revolution in its purest form. It was glam. It was sleazy. It was sexy. It was like, it was the very next like, like drugs yeah. and eyeliner and yeah. men's guitars. It was perfect. Perfect. So Exile to me is, you know, just doesn't get any better. I mean, yeah. even the filler songs in Exile are good. <laughs> you know, you know, a run through. I agree. Yeah. I just want to see his face, which is just fantastic. Or, um, uh, stop breaking down. It's a little, you know, well, could have been, it's not the most important song on the record. And it's just better than, you know, their worst stuff is better than someone else's best. Yeah. Stuff. I, I really, totally agree. Yeah. Really I mean, there's, yeah. And the fact that it's a, it, you know, came out as a two album set, which was unusual. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't no one. It's not that no one had done that, but it was very unusual in those days to have 18 studio songs in a record and, and, ha and, you know, and, it, you know, with basically two hit singles, but, a lot of really great deep tracks that could have many that could have been singles, you know, you and could have put really classics, if not singles, we all know shine a light. We all know. Happy. Yeah. And obviously exactly. was like, like a huge hit and was covered by a lot of people. Um, but I mean, everybody loves rocks off and all down the line. I mean, just, just song for song, pound for pound. It's the best. Absolutely. And I'm sure yeah. this is going to make me a lot of friends, but this is the problem with the Beatles. I'm coming right at you. I'm coming right at you. <laughs> <laughs> I like that for a segue. Is that is that for a band that's so venerated, their bad song to good song ratio is unfortunate. You know, the White Album is not as consistent as I'm being kind here. Is not the model of consistency and excitement that uh, Exile Main Street is. You yeah, know, I, there are no obladi obladas on Exile. I'm just just saying. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, I to to be fair to the Beatles, is that, is that even on, is that even on the White Album? I don't even know. But Rocky Raccoon is, and I'm, I'm, I think it is on the White Album. <laughs> but I, but yeah, I think I think they were experimenting a lot at that time, and and and, and, and I'm as all we know, experiments. But experiments are like children, and they should be seen and not heard. <laughs> and the, the, the and the, and the thing we've learned about the White Album is that they were the band was breaking up at that point. I mean they. You know what track I'm enjoying? I love this track. It's uh, the demo version. It came out on, on like, you know, when they were started releasing like the complete White Album Master, complete whatever stuff. I don't know what version of it is, but it's like a 16 minute version of Helter Skelter. And it's like this incredibly slow tempo. And I love it. And this yeah. to me is why Ringo was a great drummer. It's get, and it's just really pulsing and it's really cool, you know? And, um, and by the way, I mean, it's, Speaking of Ringo, I just want to say that when the Beatles did break up, despite whatever problems I may or may not have with them, you know, here are four guys they could have called anybody in the world to play drums, and they all called Ringo. Right. What does that tell you about Ringo Starr? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 
And that whole business about John Lennon supposedly saying Ringo's not even the best drummer in the Beatles was is a total made up. That's apocryphal. That's not real. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's, it's a, um, but yeah, no, Ringo. I mean, you know, but you know, here's an interesting thing: is so in the course of writing this book, you know, I, I find a couple of records that Ringo Starr and Charlie Watts both play on, which is which you know, it's a very happy confluence of things for us nerds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're strum nerds. It's Leon Russell's first record. Because yeah. uh, they're, they're just a studio thing, and Leon Russell knows everybody in the universe, and you know it's the coolest thing. So they do an early version of what would become Shine a Light, and he's got Mitch Hager and Bill Wyman on it, but Ringo's playing drums. Right. right? So you right. Can compare it like kind of it's almost apples to apples to the song that became Shine a Light, and but you could also compare Ringo's playing on uh, the London Howlin' Wolf sessions. Right. He, he made it on. To, he came down the first day. He only made it on like one, maybe two songs, I think, on the final product. There's some outtakes. And then Charlie played the rest of it. And you could and you could tell why it's Charlie, because he swings yeah. in a way that, in which Ringo was not capable. You know, Ringo had a thing, but he kind of makes it as funky in his little Ringo way. Charlie knows how to swing like a Chicago cat. Yeah. He really yeah. knows how to, like, take it in that direction in, in, in a way the guys around him, you know, feel it. It doesn't doesn't sound like anything else but the blues. It's, it's yeah. just incredible. Yeah. He's he's absolutely very authentic when it comes to that. And my my friend Bob Sullivan Bob Sullivan commented back a couple of um, comments ago. We were talking about songs, and I and he, he mentioned Monkey Man as a as a oh. song that represents Charlie and and uh, very much so. Yeah, he did that little thing that's like kind of a drag or you know or whatever that boom boom and, it, and Charlie's right hand seems stronger than his left hand, and that's a song that you can really hear it, you know, because it, it's just a little uneven as he's going around. There's a great thing. There's a Charlie Cam of Monkey Man on YouTube somewhere. Yeah, just the drums, and you can really see it. it's just that little buzz, that ghost note, and it just really puts it over. That that intro is pure Charlie. Absolutely. I, I tell you that Absolutely. that yeah that whole the I remember the first time I listened to that song and that whole record, Let It Bleed. But um, that's that record's got so many great songs on it. But that particular song, and I come back to it today as like a. It's. I think you talked about this in your book too, and I've referred to it the same way. It's almost. It's like it's. He plays the drums like it's an orchestra. Like the, the and people watching this might laugh at that assessment, but he no. plays a four-piece drum set with two cymbals and a pair of hi hats, and he gets so much music out of those drums, out of out of a tiny kit, literally a ride and a crash cymbal, a crash ride and a and a crash. Yeah, that's um, too much equipment. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's it's unbelievable what comes out of what he can do on that particular song or many many songs but that yeah, particular yeah you, you know let's take a trip down to new orleans and see what guys can do with a snare drum and a bass drum and nothing right else on. Yeah. and just swing the living hell out of it all day long you know you know yeah. you lead a parade with a snare drum you know i, I got nothing against big drum sets per se but you know where, where's that where's that really at charlie shows what you can do you know more is often less yeah, that is coming from a big Keith Moon fan too, you know. But yeah, yeah, and you know what? The funny, day, right? <laughs> yeah, and the funny thing about Keith Moon is, comparatively to Charlie, he played a big drum set. But you know, if you look at his drum, if you look at Keith's sort of classic setup, it was maybe three to four mounted toms, the two bass drums, snare drum, and a and maybe one floor tom or two, and only like maybe two or three cymbals. He didn't play that many cymbals compared to the number of drums. Well, beneath um, it all is just the Charlie Watts set. You, I mean, beneath all, yeah. you know, this like stuff that's growing like ivy, these tom toms that are just sort of exploding you know, everywhere. 
it's just a snare drum and a bass drum, or two bass drums that you use occasionally. But I mean, it's very, very basic. And no hi hat yeah. for Keith, of course. But you know, yeah. at the bottom line, you got you to keep that beat. You got to keep that backbeat going. That's what's going to keep the song going. And for all the other stuff, which is very exciting, it's like Jackson Pollock, you know, the splatter painting and stuff. You know, it, it, it's just fantastic. But you know, it works for him, like. You can always say too, you know, for you art nerds out there, you can always tell a fake Jackson Pollock. Like when someone, oh, anybody could do that. My kid could do that. A monkey could do that. You know, just throwing paint on a canvas. But when it's not done by someone who's feeling it, you can tell in like two seconds. Mm-hmm. And there's an aerosats quality there. If you don't have it, you don't have it. It's not yeah. just throwing paint. There's yeah. rhythm in it. There's there's sense to it. There's time, feeling, and you know, it's controlling time and space. Uh, you know, uh, and Keith can Keith Moon could do it. You know, a million other guys can't, obviously. Uh, yeah. well, and a million other bands that wouldn't tolerate it. I mean, it's very lucky to be in a band that were that fit to find the right guys. Because Keith Moon, you know, couldn't play in the Rolling Stones any more than uh, Charlie Watts could play in The Who. And right. we saw that with Kenny Jones. I mean, on paper, he was the right guy. Uh, but when we came down to it, like I said, it was replacing Jackson Pollock with a house painter. You know, it, you know I mean, Kenny Jones was great in the faces. He was not the right guy for that job. Yeah. And then they found Zach Starkey, who was the right guy for the job. Absolutely. Oddly yeah. enough, he understood the implications of Keith Moon without having to, you know, copy him and could keep it exciting. And, you know, when I saw them play, it seemed like he was pushing Pete Townsend, like they had a little competition, you know, you know, like, you know, let's, let's see who can like, you know, throw this a little bit harder. And that's kind of what drove the who. And, you know, the bass player's job is kind of to ride herd and keep some, which is great because Zen was played so much, but really he's kind of holding it together. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Barrage of notes. It's like, you know, that's kind of the organizational system, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, this crazy, you know, abstract, you know, expressionism rock and roll band. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I look at Zach as being like a, uh, a more kind of refined version of Keith, like all the good parts of Keith Moon and not to say there are bad parts, but all the good parts of <laughs> Keith <laughs> Moon. And then, and, but with a, with a real more, a much more sensible yeah. um understanding of what his job is in the band, you know, of keeping good time. And, and, uh, and, you know, he was, you know, Keith was his idol and his dad, Ringo is Keith's best friend. So, so there's a real, you know, connection there. And yeah, he's got provenance. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but it's true though. You don't, you you don't want the next Keith moon, but yeah, he gets it. He knows when to push and he knows how to control. He knows how to have fun. You know, he knows when to, when to pull the trigger when you need to. Yeah, I think Zach's great. I was I was bitter. I wanted that job. I told you before. <laughs> <laughs> That's the job I want. You know? uh, I was ready. Well, they they tried reaching you, but you were yeah you were vacationing somewhere at the time, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I was at, at my chalet in Spain. <laughs> <laughs> so, so give me some other Mike Edison um, favorite Stones records. We talked about some girls before we were live, which yeah, which well, some girls are favorites. And I think, yeah, it's, it's just brutal. And ditto like the Exile on Main Street experience. By the time they got it on the road, it was just flying. I mean, it was just blasting, you know, so some girls and first of all, it starts with a disco song. And this is Mick, obviously disco. I mean, everybody says, Oh, it's all about disco and punk, the seventies disco and punk. And I laugh because anybody who was there knows it was really about Jethro Tull and sticks in Kansas and the outlaws. And, you know, and disco and punk were kind of like, you know, like, like when I was in high school, if you were a punk rocker, you were definitely a freak or a weirdo, you know? 
And, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and disco, by the time it kind of bubbled up into the consciousness of the people that I knew, had gone from the sound of Philadelphia to the sound of the shopping mall. You know, it had really become diluted, and it wasn't really what I would call great black dance music anymore, which the Stones played, and they were great. I mean, they were much hipper to it. You know, look, Pink Floyd had a disco song. I mean, Paul McCartney went for it. I mean, all yeah. these people, the Kinks tried to The Kinks, song. right, right, oh, yeah. Yeah, but the Stones <laughs> were playing black dance music and, and doing a great job of it for a very, very long time. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, they knew these guys, right? I mean, my God, they, they knew Marvin Gaye, you know, they, they knew James Brown, they knew all these people, you know, they weren't Johnny Come Lately's, you know, like Pink Floyd trying to put a disco song on their science fiction dystopian epic is a little cynical, you know, in, in my book. But the rest of this record, you know, I know they had to chase the punk rockers away a little bit, prove that they still had it. They were coming off of a couple of records that were disappointing. I love Black and Blue too, but that's mm-hmm. guys playing in a room that shows that they're, you know, but as a, you know, as a, you know, it's only rock and roll. You know, there's something a little bit missing, you know, from, from that record. And I think Goats Had Soup too. They sound a little bit murky. Jimmy Miller's relationship with with them was getting yeah, kind of yeah. weird plays. There were <laughs> a lot of drugs going around. And, you know, I mean, he said, you know, Mick was like, you know, jetting off to L.A. and Hollywood. And I was like jetting off to Dopesville. You know, it just was not like the best time to cohese as a group but with some girls they brought it all together again and i think they really wanted it and they, they had something to prove and that's yeah, it yeah. they were like you know you know you know fuck you guys we are the world's greatest rock and roll band yeah and they proved it and if you listen to the like uh like the live in texas some girls live in texas then it's brutal try playing along with that the tempos no are, yeah. are incredible and again with charlie like with opening the hi-hat the weirdest places they did not sound like the sex pistols or the ramones or the clash not at all you know? No, they they still sounded like the Stones, which well, was country cool. songs. If you listen to yeah. them, I mean, it's punk. It's got the energy. It's nasty and it's sleazy. And I don't know how they got away with you know the song. Some girls they're still playing it in their set, and you know, and yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's just. I mean, <laughs> you know, you know, my goodness. I mean, just you know, but it's other times. It's fine. I, I got personally, I got no problem. You know, as long as long as it's uh, nothing's mean spirited. So I'm cool with it. You know. Um, but man, it's just like sleazy punk rock. When you break it down, it's just two chords, Chuck Berry. That's it. Right. You know, right. When, when we were doing the party for sympathy for the, uh, 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 drive looking for my Lucille Ball mask, but it's in the other room. <laughs> we put together the Some Girls tribute band, the Lucille Balls, um, <laughs> just to play a couple songs. And then we realized when we broke it down with my friends from the Flesh Tones and my buddy Bob Burt played drums, who's been in Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore and uh, is, is, is a uh, great local uh, drumming superstar. Um, but the weird thing is when we put it together, we realize that Miss You, Whip Comes Down, Shattered. Uh, Respectable. Like, well, they're, all the, they're all two chords. They're based on the same yeah. armor. It's just, that's it. They're just rocking between two chords. And what can you do with it? And they won. They won that battle. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's yeah. just incredible. And by the time they got it on the road, you watch those videos. Like, you know, they're just really spitting it. They're throwing fire. It's really good. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That was that was a it was a turning point, I think, too, where a lot of people thought they were that was it. You know, they'd written yeah. them off, and, and oh, they were called "Has Bands When It's yeah. Only Rock and Roll" came out. Lester Bangs right. was like saying, you know, the, the idea of a thirty-year-old playing this music. I mean, no one could anticipate, you know, Bruce Springsteen being seventy-five years old, and you know, and still playing four-hour shows. It just wasn't in the culture at the time. No, that generation not. to superannuate, you know, and still show up for work on time. Right, right on. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, oh, my friend Neil Porter really likes the Flowers album. That's going back. Okay. That's, yeah, that's a great album. Yeah, I like that too. You know, I think 
great thing about Charlie and, and the Stones, but since we're talking about Charlie Watts, is a certain evolution, you know, where you, know, you, you hear him play on those early records and it's good. And, you know, I always say like satisfaction was kind of a turning point, especially if you listen to like the live version they put out. It's very punk. It's very driving. It's much more direct. Uh, I don't know if it's a combination of like him getting more self-confidence in the group and then moving away from being a honestly a very talented cover band, which is really what they were on their first couple yeah. of records, you know, right. to really, you know, you know, making it their thing. Um, but then when you get from that to like Gimme Shelter, it's like a different guy. And then when you get from Gimme Shelter to, to Some Girls, and Some Girls is when he starts really opening up the high at the weird places, and, and all of a sudden there's this China symbol that like, like, right. where'd, that, where'd that come from? Because at, at that point, the only time you saw a China symbol was if you went to see Rush or something, you know? It didn't make sense for a blues band to have a big old China symbol in the, in the, in the And it sounded so right, though. It was like right. big, noisy trash can symbol. And I was like, wow, like new dimension in percussion. Charlie. And, and, and the funny thing was, you're right, he played it on singles <laughs> on that record. If you listen to it, and, and I have, there's not, it's not on every song. It's on the song, Some Girls, obviously. It's on Respectable. Um, and it's sort of faintly in a couple of places. But by the next, but all those songs from the, from the next two or three records came from those sessions in Paris in 1977. And so by the time they got to um, Emotional Rescue, the record that had She's So Cold. And, you Which know, is, that's it's still cold. It's got that big. It's just, that's his main crash. And it's been since. 1978 or 1980 his main crash symbol yeah. and it's a key part of the sound now you hear it yeah it's like, oh. absolutely it's great. on the blues record they did blue and lonesome right i love on the howl and wolf song which i love commit a crime which is one chord which i'm a big fan of one chord songs so, you yeah. know you can do it with the riff and that and you can put it over like that that to me is a test of a great band a great blues band you know none of these clever turnarounds you know they don't sound like a bar band i mean you sound like you know real street level tough blues but he's like wanging the living hell out of the china symbol there's a china yeah. symbol in Holland Wolf's band i mean you know it's like you know, like, <laughs> yeah. know there's like you know at that point it's like a prog rock toy and, and it just yeah. sounds visceral and trashy and good and there's no precedent for it really no and, and you know the crazy kind of sound on a chicago blues song it's fantastic yeah, I was going to say, too, the crazy thing about that, too. I remember seeing them. I didn't see them in 78, which was would have been the first tour that he used that China. I saw them in 81. Mm -hmm. And I remember I saw them at Hartford because they didn't play in Boston that, on that tour. And I went out to see him at the Hartford Civic Center, whatever it was, and had a pretty good seat. And he and I remember seeing him playing the China like a ride symbol mm -hmm. to exactly what you're saying. It was the first time I'd seen anybody, let alone him, do that. And, and it's only an 18-inch symbol to begin with, so it's pretty small to play as a ride anyway, you know, to get any sort of – But and he had the kind of control – he's right-handed, obviously, but he had the kind of control where he could he could play the thing like a ride with it with the edges turned up, and he right. plays almost like sort of on top of it, not so much on the edge. But And I'm, I'm watching him playing like um, – I'm trying to think of a song where he was – a pretty fast tempo tune. He's I'm going, wow, he's playing the China like a rod symbol. Yeah, and you know, and it's it, crazy. Gives, it gives you a lot of wash too, you know, but it's yeah. very, it's just a good, trashy, nasty sound. You know, it really does. I'm, I'm always amazed by his right right hand. Uh, watching like the Boogie Woogie band he had over the last few years, the ABC. Oh, yeah. The Boogie Woogie, like, you know, which is like going right back to the beginning. And um, on the playlists I made, I, I believe the first song, um, and again, MikeEdison.com, please uh, find me there, but check out the Charlie Watts playlist. Um, I think it's the, 
list called Charlie Takes Over, and it starts with Down the Road a piece, which was had been like a you know jump and jive hit, and Chuck Berry had hit with it. Uh, I forget who wrote it, but a bunch of people have done it. And you're trying to, it's just like incredible control. And then to hear him play the boogie woogie so many years later, it really is his game is driving that whole thing. It's incredibly hard to do. He's got a great swing beat. Well, I was going to say so. So, and to continue on, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to interject on what I'm going to ask you. But but to me, like what I what I've always tried to turn people onto when back when you know when I was a kid and and I'd have arguments with other drummers that say would say you know he's you know he's he's not as good as John Bonham or he's not as you know um, before the Neil Peart days. But um, but I would refer to Nineteenth Nervous Breakdown, which is some of the most. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, and, and when you listen to what he's actually playing and then the fills that he plays and, and the way he executes those things, I mean, and, and, you know, I don't know that, I don't know that he ever was able to do it again after that record. I don't know, but, and I, I don't, I don't say that in a disparaging way, but, but it's, it's, he, he went to another level to play the way he played on that song. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's really great. And again, it's Charlie though. There's an evolution. You know, a lot of guys, they, they arrive, the stork drops them off at the doorstep and they're fully formed. John Bonham, the first guy, that first song on the first Led Zeppelin record, Kong, Kong, ting, ting. that's the John Bonham more or less you were getting across the spectrum. I mean, they, they played a little bigger, a little heavier, they recorded different, but that was John Bonham. He had the bass drum thing. Jimmy Page had a concept, how to record him and, and yeah. the sound. It was there. Keith Moon, Boom, from day one. Charlie Watts, you know, I mean, the guy you're hearing, you know, on some girls is not the same girl that was playing on Flowers. Right, it, right. It's, I mean, it's, it's a pretty remarkable thing. You're right, you're right. Uh, and the and, and, and this- same, suck that, go back to that craft symbol for a second, the China symbol. Now you listen to, um, and I, I list them in, in sympathy uh, for the drummer, you know, like on Voodoo Lounge, first song, to get the crash, the second song, every song starts with the China symbol, because it's sort of like, you know, this semiotic experiment of signs and signifiers to let you know that you're listening to the Stones, you know, before Mick starts singing. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know and... Um, uh, that last is um, the bigger bang. Is that their last studio record, right? Yeah, well, it was. Yep. The first song, and it's like it's noisy, and all of a sudden you're like the snare drum that's completely overmodulated, just like completely ringing all over the place. It's so cool, and then, you know, and this giant China symbol's like great sounds, and then you know things kind of ball kind of rolls off the table after that. To be honest with you, but it's but that is like <laughs> the Stonesism they needed to you to hear to let you know that this is it. This is really authentic Rolling Stones. Yeah, and it's okay. Charlie who's driving. It's like you know, it's not the sound of Keith's guitar. It's the sound of Charlie's snare drum and the you know yeah. And the, you know, <laughs> yeah. I agree, and 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 it's it, those kind of classic Motown intros that he's kind of yeah. does all the time now. I mean, it would, they'd be sort of rare in the old days, but now it's kind of like a. Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was just listening to uh, Hitchhike, their version I was going through, you know, versus Mar- the drums on the Marvin Gaye thing are fantastic. But Charlie, too, I mean, he got it. He understood not just how to play it, but the implications of how to swing it, you know? Yeah. yeah. You know, it wasn't a copycat. It was, you know, they brought something pretty cool to it. Absolutely. Yeah. No, this is this is great. And there's some great comments. So I'm going to try to catch a couple, read a couple of these to you. Um, uh let's see let's see let's see if there's any questions i hope i hey by the way don mccauley was on a second ago we invited don for those of you who don't know who don is he's charlie's drum tech the one and only don mccauley legendary uh, but he's doing a session himself today so he couldn't join us live today but he's he's all right that don <laughs> start this one too fast or too slow 
<laughs> he's giving us famous comments from singers to drummers. Yeah, want this, or, or, or do you want this one fast? Or do you want this one too? Like we were talking on the phone the other day, you know, a band I was play, playing in the Ronch Hands, which my band were banned for a long time. And uh, we're on Spotify and stuff. Anyone wants to hear me play the drums, uh, playing kind of like an overheated R&B punk rock kind of, kind of thing. And um, of which I'm quite proud. Uh, but I remember my first gig, we were doing this song, um, I call it Hellbound. It's kind of like a, a punk rock gospel kind of kind of thing, and and it starts out with this big, big, big kind of like I, I call it right from the black church, just kind of amped up by a bunch of white kids who had a few too many too much to drink, and it sounded good, and was driving it really hard, and feeling really good. And the song was done, and the bass player looks at me, he and he says. Dude, you play that song that fast again, I'm going to shove my bass up your ass. <laughs> and within one second, the guitar player looks at me and says, that was fucking awesome. Play every song like that. <laughs> Classic, man. Yeah. Yeah, I went um, with a guitar player. I signed with a guitar <laughs> Well, I, I don't know if Neil Porter is still watching um, from my band Grand Theft Audio, but that's a classic. I think I told you this the other day. Classic scenario is we'll be doing a song and and – I'll I'll count it and start it, and Neil will look at me and kind of give me this look like, and and Neil sings most of the songs, and he'll look at me and go like, like it's kind of fast, slow down, and then I'll look over at Paul Gianelli to my left, and he'll look at me and either nod his head or go like, pick it up, pick it up, you know. It's yeah, because like, you know, I play guitar and sing a lot too, right? Sort of. You know, New York City is the least friendly place in the world for drummers. So who knows? Had I not been, you know, living in New York my whole life, maybe I'd be playing the drums more often. And I do play as often as I can. But I've been leading bands, playing guitar and singing, playing a little piano occasionally. And it, it is kind of tough to, like, to bring the drummer along with you or to make them lay back. And you know, yeah. you know I mean, I'm, I'm hard on drummers, you know, because I because I am one, and, uh, and I do get the whole thing. You know, you know how a drummer's. When, it, when there's a drummer at your door, right? He speeds up. Of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, even uh, as a singer, too, it's like someone's like, Jesus Christ, I can't get all the words in. Or, yeah. you know, we're to hold it back. And that's when you start realizing, like, how great, like, I mean, I mean, Mick does it great when the tempos are right. Uh, but, like, Frank Sinatra, who's singing so far behind the beat, it's so cool. You know, it's really sexy. It's just a different approach to it that, you know, it's not, not everything like this, which is, you know, you know, I mean, that's the Ramones, and that's perfect. I mean, yeah, you know, exactly. You know, by the way, I think I'm the only person ever to call the Ramones virtuosos. You know, which, <laughs> <laughs> um, but like I say to all you uh, Rush fans out there, yeah, give it a go. Have a go, <laughs> like the Ramones, and, and report back. Let me know how that goes because it's not easy to play at that tempo no. evenly and make it swing, and to get three other people in the room that feel the same thing that you're feeling. Yeah, no, I agree. I that, yeah, to play to play that it's fast and, and not have it be a train wreck. No, but I was going to say exactly what you said too. And, and I'm, I'm, I, I was making light of that, but I'm super tempo conscious when we play. I have a, I have an app that I use to, to at least count me in. Um, right. And I, and I'm super critical of myself with, with my tempos and my time. And, and I always want to make it feel right for everybody, but it's just one of those things where, where I joke with the guys because Neil and Paul, um, the other Paul Candelori, he's, he's sort of neutral on the whole thing, or he'll just, he'll just kind of usually turn around and kind of go like, yeah, man, this feels great, you know, but, <laughs> but I'll have one guy telling me, you know, pick it up, pick it up, speed it up. And then I'll have Neil who's singing, you know, a lot of the songs turn around going what would this look like, you know, but, and, and, and I can certainly tell when it's too fast. I can yeah. tell when it's, when it's, you know, and I, and if he's trying to, get all the words out but well, the problem is when it starts off too fast and you're stuck with it <laughs> yeah yeah 
<laughs> you know, well, you know, we were talking about tempo on our phone call the other day, and I've become like the sort of like tempo obsessive. I sent you a couple of tracks. I don't know if you have a second to, mm-hmm. to listen, but uh, uh, Lonely Avenue, Ray Charles. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. It's uh, Dr. John called it uh, the Junkers Blues because so that's the way junkies used to shuffle down the street. You know, it's <laughs> such it's, you know, one one hair slower and it's and, it, and it's just going all to hell. But one hair faster and it doesn't have that weird lurch to it. It doesn't feel, you know, yeah. you know, sexy and a little warped. To me, Lonely Avenue is just like the coolest tempo and the slow tempos are hard. And you know, we were talking about uh, Tumbling Dice being like the Stones' great example of a song yeah. that lives very, very specifically in a tempo. And I mean, I think it's pretty much a straight quote from Keith. He says, yeah, you hot it up too much and you're rushing it. And if you slow it down, it, it, it drags. It's very specific where it lives. And Mick always wants to pick it up because it, it rocks a little. I mean, you think it rocks. A yeah. Little more, yeah. But that's fool's gold because really, you know, you got to like have faith in the tempo. I, I, I know that everybody wants to rock harder and it feels like like my band, Edison Rocket Train, that I played, my whole thing when I was doing it was like, I'm just afraid to play not, you know, in fifth gear, that I'd somehow lose someone's attention. Now, you know, um, you know, like, uh, <laughs> like that fellow Paul wrote to the, that fellow, the Corinthians, you know, when I was a child, child, I played with childish things. And now I'm a man and I've put down such things. I feel confident playing slower songs, you know, yeah. I feel better yeah. playing a ballad. I feel much better playing slower on the drums. And I know no one's going anywhere. If I play with confidence and I believe in what I'm doing, ain't no one going nowhere, you know, uh, I mean, playing at slow tempos, but yeah, you yeah. Know, I think Mick, even at this late age, still has that fear a little bit. It's a big stadium. If I don't rock and roll them all night long, you know, they might go get some popcorn or something. But and they fight about it. I know, you know. <laughs> you know like, no, yeah, yeah. Not. Um, I understand they have um, uh, the keyboard player. Uh, they, they they don't Shuffle play a click, yeah. right? They don't play in a click track, but but he counts on the tempos. The tempos he does are marked yeah. at the beginning, um, and then from there. He- you know, He's the MD, and, he, and, he, and I've been to their rehearsals where he's he's calling the shots, and he'll he'll say, you know, if you look, if you've ever seen their set lists, um, they have the they have the time, they have the tempos charted out on the set list, and, every yeah, and, song. and the keys too, because after all these years, they can't remember what, yeah. that, <laughs> that that you know, Midnight Riders and you know, Open G capoed up to the tenth fret. I mean, I mean, still got to be reminded of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but you know, you make a good point, Mike. I think. You know, you you know from playing in a band, I know that you can't get the nuance in a song like a tumbling dice at a at a fast tempo. I mean, it, to me, that where that song lives on the record is is magical because Charlie's able to it's pull amazing. off all that stuff that he it's can't a, really do live. And I love when I was a kid, I practiced that beginning that and you know, as a kid, that was missed by now, second nature. But to know where those that's just a thing of beauty you know it it falls together and you know any faster and you know you know i mean rip this joint that's the fast song it's the same thing it's the same two notes right two good whacks on the snare drum um you know it's a whole different thing though yeah yeah absolutely yeah, that's um, I apparently it took them like 140 takes to keep Keith was happy with yeah. the tempo. You know, they were there for like, you know, 20 hours in a row. <laughs> you know, people were just dropping and Keith said, no, let's do it again. <laughs> and I think too, wasn't the song, I think I that and I think the actual arrangement of the song too, right? I mean, they just could not really, everybody couldn't be in sync with just, you know, where the where the stops were, where the um, the breakdown was and, and all that stuff. And 
there's so much myth, you know, surrounding that record in the basement, you know, yeah. you know, at French stuff. But don't forget, I mean, they brought it out to L.A. and they sweetened it there. A lot of it was recorded at a proper recording studio in Los Angeles. Right. All the backing vocals, a lot of the horns, all the vocals that you're hearing. I don't think much was really done in the basement. I mean, right. yeah, they were super creative and a lot of the, you know, it was all done down there. But that record got finished in, in you know, a proper studio in Los Angeles. And, right. you know. I know it's more romantic to think, you know, they did it in like some form of Gestapo hideout in France, while they're, you know, <laughs> you know, junky tax, tax exiles, but it, you know. But, but it's cool to note though, that, you know, like the drums, for example, I mean, he, they got an amazing drum sound in that basement. Cause those, yeah. those are what you hear. I mean, what, what yeah. you got out of Keith's basement is, you know, we're the final, I mean, I just, I think it's one of the best sounding sonically, one of the best sounding drum records that they, it's just so natural sounding. When it came know? out, it got attacked for being murky sounding, you know? Yeah. And I, I think it sounds real. You know, but I, I look at the sound yeah. of the Little Richard record. I mean, what is it? How many mics do you think were in the room with specialty records where Little Richard went in and cut Kugali Miss Molly? Like, like, like a ribbon mic hanging over the, t- over the piano and maybe another one hanging over the drums and, right. and, and let's go. You know, but you, you know, I mean, Little Richard used to record after doing gigs, right? They'd play like three sets in the club and then go to the recording studio at two in the morning. So they were like on fire and, you yeah, know, record yeah. one take for like, you know, Good Golly and His Molly or, you know, you know, these good, greatest rock and roll songs of all time because they're on fire. You could hear the sweat on Exile, which is what's nice about it. It really feels like guys yeah. at home working together, you know, which you start to lose obviously across the continuum of Rolling Stones records to the point when, you know, you get to Dirty Works, they weren't even literally weren't in the same room. No. You know, no. which begs the question, how do you make a Rolling Stones record with no Rolling Stones? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you got a, you have a question um, from Eric Davidson. Hey, Mike, what do you think of the Stones' Blue and Lonesome record from a couple of years ago, which you, you hit on a second ago, but maybe you can talk about that for, uh, for Eric Davidson. Thanks for the question, Eric. I think uh, I think we're all pretty much agreed. I mean, people I know, I was like really surprised. I picked it up, said, "Well, this will be you know, troll, the Rolling Stones playing uh, the blues." I mean, cool. And then I was surprised at how much I kept playing it. Like it just kept yeah. going back on the turntable over and over again. Um, and my house is filled with Muddy Waters records and Helen Wolf records and Bo Diddley records and Magic Sam records and you know and all, and all this stuff. And yeah, this was good. You, you know, the biggest fear is you never know which mix you're going to get. Right. You know, the myth that he thinks that people want or the myth that actually is a genius blues musician can settle down. He's an unbelievably good harmonica player and a great singer and a real student of the art form. And when he, you know, can settle down into that and isn't more concerned about like running back and forth across the stage. And that's the myth we got, thank God, you know, and, and yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's really great. And I, uh, I love that. You know, beats the hell out of the China symbol. On those songs. And, you know, and, and, and I, and I further to that too, and no criticism on Mick, cause I think he's an important part of what's kept the stones going all these years, yeah, needless yeah. to say, <laughs> but, but I think he gets hung up. And, and again, I, I simply, here I am like pontificating about yeah. Mick Jagger, but, but yeah, I think yeah. he, he, you, you know, that there's this sort of internal, uh, situation with him and Keith where Mick is always trying to be or always trying to be not current, but he wants to be doing playing music and writing music. That's that you're hearing on the radio. Anything that Keith hasn't said, you know, a dozen times. Yeah. He always wants yeah. to make the record that he heard in the club last night. Yeah. And you Keith know. wants it to sound like the stones. And I, and right. I, and I, I'm on Keith's side of the, and you know, and, um, equation, you, know you know, like I was saying to you the other day, when we're talking, I get the idea that mixed relationships with the audience and Keith's relationships yeah. with, with, with the music, 
you know, you know, it it just, and and that's where it's at. He's not so concerned with the tropics of show business and, you know, and that's great. It's mixed job. He's the greatest front man in the history of the sport. I mean, there's no question about it. And, you know, you think you say, you say, well, I think Mick's kind of important. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I was saying to my (laughs) wife just this morning, you know, honey, I think you're an important part of this relationship. (laughs) Of course. Um, But it's nice when he, when he could settle down and, and just do that thing that he's so good at without really worrying you know, about what other people are going to think. Cause he's really, really good. And, and Mick, you know, I, I, when, it, when, you know, God forbid the day comes when they write his obituary, they're going to say he's the greatest rock star of all time. And I hope someone remembers to say he's one of the great lyricists of all time. Absolutely. But that's yeah. going to get yeah. lost in the thing, but read the lyrics through Exile on Main Street. They're, they're dark and blue and beautiful. And they all, they, they very, yeah. very tactile and wonderful. Like Absol- really, and, really and- good. Yeah, and other records too. But I have to I have to just repeat a comment from my friend Brian County, who lives uh, in the Boston area. We were talking about Blue and uh, Blue and Lonesome. He gave me a copy of that at a gig. He came to see my band play and and laid a copy of the CD on me, which was really nice. And thank you, Brian. And uh, and he comments, <laughs> Mike talks faster than rip this joint. <laughs> I just thought I'd share that with you. Well, it was slower when the studio record came out. Now we're doing it live. <laughs> <laughs> oh man uh and i agree with bob sullivan i think mick is the best frontman on the planet um and so yeah, mike just mick's the guy you know i mean everybody that, that i love that i consider a great frontman whether it's Iggy pop or lux interior or you know uh you know jim morrison who i run a little hot and cold with honestly but they're all come after mick jagger mick yeah. was the guy that made that thing now yeah i mean james brown's watching him and thinking mick owes me a few bucks but uh but yeah, it's Mick. It's all Mick. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's incredible. I love watching on, uh, I, I, everybody's got to watch. If you're a Stones fan, you've never seen Ladies and Gentlemen of the Rolling Stones. And it's great because they're playing next to each other. The stage right. is only about as big as, you know, my bedroom. It's not like this gigantic arena, this Olympic-sized swimming pool of a stage. They're standing, you know, right next to each other, and he's on the mic stand. You know, and he's moving. He doesn't stop. Yeah. But man, they are together. And it is like, it's a much different presentation than what it would become. Yeah. Keith and, and Mick Taylor and Bill Wyman have have chords on their guitars to their <laughs> amplifiers. You know what I mean? It was like, it was yeah. back in the days when you had about 20 feet to roam around. Yeah, they should bring that came on. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I love that. When I, whenever I, I watch it all the time too. Well, not pretty often. And, and, um, I'll put the DVD in or I'll go onto YouTube and I'll just, you know, up in my favorites, there's a bunch of songs that are saved up there. And, and there's just, you know, I mean, they were just so real and so they were so on top of their game to begin with. And my favorite period is the Mick Taylor period. I love Ronnie Wood. I think Ronnie's a really underrated guitar player. Yeah. He's, he's, he gets a bum rap from some hardcore McTaylor fans, but oh, please, um, right. you I, know, know, I know people need like to me, get a life. And you know, and you know, we talked about it in, in my book, <laughs> um, hmm. which you can get a signed copy. Just uh, give me a holler on Facebook and we'll make sure we get one to you in time for Christmas um, or find me at my website, mikeedison.com. But as I say, like McTaylor was kind of like the designated hitter, you know, the gaudy home run hitter, you know, the power forward you needed for a couple seasons so you could win the, you know, win the cup. He was never going to be a Rolling Stone forever and ever. He was he was that guy, and he was great. And there's no, you know, he is X on Street. We talked about it, but absolutely, you yeah. know, he was Sticky obviously replaced. Yeah. And Ronnie, yeah, you know, at this point, you know, he's the third guy to sit in that chair. But at this point, no Ronnie, no Stones either. So yeah, yeah. no, I agree. And you know, and I'll, and I'll say this with 
with tremendous respect for Mick Taylor because I, I as I said, I mean, my my favorite period. I listen to that period more than anything. That's four or five records in as, a row. As we do, yeah. And for people who don't know, that's the period from a little bit of of Let It Bleed, a couple of songs, but it was like Get Your Yeah Yeahs Out the Live Record, Sticky Fingers, Exile on Main Street, Goat Said Soup. It's only rock and roll. That's all Mick Taylor. But, um, but when I saw them in 2012 and 2013, when Mick was back in the band. Um, you know, he, it was so great to see him, but he wasn't the Mick Taylor that we remember from 1972 and 1969. But nobody is, come on. Yeah. If you look at, no, if you look right. at, uh, and if you hear like some of the bootlegs that are now coming out, you know, officially, you know, live at the roundhouse, live at the marquee, that stuff, um, uh, was it like live at the roundhouse? Something on the, on the sticky Brussels Deluxe version, the Brussels yeah. version is amazing. Brussels stuff is, what yeah. What blows my mind is at the end of, um, I think it's at the Roundhouse. It's it comes with the Sticky Fingers Deluxe uh, yeah. CD yeah. package, and it's on Spotify and streaming, whatever. So you don't have to go out and spend a million dollars on it. The version of "Live with Me" is like one of the most brutal things I've ever heard in my life. I mean, this goes. I mean, Mick Taylor. Yeah, but it's like Charlie's just like. I mean, he's just like you know, just just nailing the history of rock and roll to the cross. I mean, it is unbelievable. It is it is just furious and then midnight rambler which is just like a symphony of violence it, it's so heavy and so dirty and so threatening sounding and yeah. probably yeah. changing tempos and moving between the swing beat and you know the straight ahead rock and roll thing you know and then picking up the tempo and then pulling back and you know yeah and, it's and singing about like you know you know this violence like you know it's pretty dark <laughs> you know it, it, it's incredible you couldn't do it now it wouldn't happen and you know whether mick taylor made made I mean, he's obviously on all those records, but he was a part of the time when they truly were the greatest rock and roll band yeah. in the world. Like nothing even came close. Nothing's come close since, frankly. You know, I know I don't want to yeah. be sound like a dinosaur, like, you know, okay, boomer, you know, like, wow. Cause I do believe people make good music and I believe, I believe there are lots of kids making stuff, but you know, you watch that and you just got to rethink what the hell you're doing, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know. But you're, I mean, to, yeah, those, those versions, like you say, those live versions of, of like Midnight Rambler, they're from, even from Get Your Yeah Yeahs Out, which was Mick Taylor's first tour with him, right. to how it evolved to 73 in Brussels, which it's he was. Incredible. Like, difference between 69 and 1970 or 69, it, it's light years. Like the Stray Cat Blues on uh, Get Your Yeah Yeahs Out, it's kind of, kind of loping and it kind of, it's mm. kind of much, and then all of a sudden it became this very vindictive, you know, very, you, you know, it was hard. It was like an indictment of the culture at some point. Yeah, it was just, yeah. you know, it was a real, real shift. Yeah, I, 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 I love that about them. How they, they obviously just in, in, it was all a result of playing those songs live. You know what I mean? They recorded them one way, and so many of them never sounded the same when they played them live, and then they just kept evolving and which is and, again and why it, the rolling stones are always better than the beatles in case anybody <laughs> was wondering the question it's because the beatles stopped playing in 1966 that's it well this is that's true it. they this stopped true. Being, they stopped playing and the rolling stones just fed off of it okay and if you were saying 1970 or 1969 who's the best band well it's the one that i can go see at madison square garden blowing you know you know the tops off the heads of people you know not the guys making an art rock record in the studio which is yeah. fine and yeah. I, I approve of that sort of behavior too but if you want to know who's the best rock and roll band it's the guy guys that are out there playing midnight rambler yeah yep yeah. no I'm, I'm i'm with you i'm with you on that <laughs> I've, I've seen him many times well i yeah where does the time go yeah where does the time go <laughs> i was gonna say we've been we've been at it for an hour and 15 minutes already wow and that i don't 
but let's let's just talk for another couple of minutes and see if there are any other questions because this is great. I'm having such a great time. I'm I was going to show you, you know, John. Thank you. You know, like I said, guys like you and uh, our friend Don McCauley. I mean, you know, you guys make this a good tour for me. You know, it's a uh, oh, pleasure. You know, um, you know, you know, guys who are um, legit. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> who, who, you know, who, who can get the writing? Because, you, know, you know, people always say to me, you know, and, and you know the story. I mean, Charlie Watts did call me, which is really very sweet. Um, yes. You know, I want to have you tell that story. Kind of, I'm not really starstruck, but it's like, I mean, by nature, it's not kind of where, where I'm at. But it was like really kind of humbling, you know, very flattering and humbling to get, get the call. Um, but I didn't write the book to be friends with Charlie Watts, you know. And someone says, so did you talk to the Stones and wrote the book? Look, I made a very perfunctory investigation about interview but the truth is i'm better off not talking to them because they're not my sources and i don't owe them anything and i feel no obligation to be nice to them which is as a journalist that's where i want to be yeah. you know i don't yeah. I, I can call them out on their own bullshit without fear of like you know you know some pub publicist calling me up or saying what the hell you know i can't believe you said that about mick you know after you were so nice to you you're like, <laughs> like you know i just gotta call it like i see it that's just the way it is and yeah you know, there's no bullshit in the book and, and it's better that way, you know, and, um, it's, you know, uh, it's the way it's gotta be. I think music writing, you know, I, I, I'm a writer, right. And I, I've written a lot of books and, um, I hope people will discover my other writing through this book, but I'm not a music writer per se. Uh, I do write a lot about music. It's always drifting through my books and I've written for spin and some other things and here and there and when it happens, um, but I think the whole business is completely corrupt. <laughs> you know, like seriously, if I read one more like five star review of a mediocre Bruce Springsteen record, I'm going to fucking shoot somebody. Yeah, it's just, yeah. I, I don't want to be a press flag for somebody else. I don't mind being a cheerleader for rock and roll. I believe in rock and roll, you know, I, my heart of hearts, you know, if you need a shot of salvation, you know, that's where I'm going. Right. Right. To, right, right on the main street. But, you know, but I don't need to lie about it. You know, I don't need to like prop up the corporate industrial rock complex, either and that's what my book aimed to be about the drums and rock and roll and grease and sex and you know and everything that was wrong as well as everything that was right and i, I think that's why it's resonated with, with so many people because you know it, it isn't a puff piece about charlie watts i mean yeah you know yeah, yeah charlie matters but it's not just fluff yeah no i agree and i and i think and i think you talked about this the other day when we spoke on the phone too that your your publisher um, wasn't keen on you doing this book, but I think I, I think you realized, and they didn't realize that they're they're the the market potential, the interest there is in writing a book about Charlie. But I just be, hold that thought for one second because my good friend Jeff McAllister, a fine drummer, also uh, and yeah. a big fan of Charlie. Do you okay. know Jeff? Uh, through Facebook. Through yeah, the, great. Okay. Of digital technology, we're buddies. Yeah. And Jeff said, "Did you? This is a good question. Did you notice the absence of the China on the Some Girls bonus tracks?" Ah, um, that's a very good question. And I'm a big yeah. fan of those bonus tracks. Best country record ever made. <laughs> yeah. And I would I'm okay, I'm gonna have to go go through, you know, I'll be honest, like it didn't didn't really occur to me. I know it's I mean, like I said, some girls is when it started just to bubble up. Emotional rescue was more, and then yeah. obviously yeah. the drums were really tweaked to sound very rude on top to you, and it became part of the sound. But um yeah. Yeah. what's that and country about driving on the FDR and the Long Island Expressway? It's not on there. Because um, I think it's on a, it's on an emotional rescue, which is the same sessions, right? Some of it yeah, is anyway. Yeah. Um, Most of it. Well, I'm going to give it a listen to Stone, Stone songs, and of course, she was hot. It's, it's on all those songs. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say I'm going to give it a listen, Jeff. And I think my theory is that as as Mike was saying, it it was sort of bubbling. That China was starting to happen. I think they probably cut a bunch of songs 
they they Charlie got that flat ride during those sessions in 1977 at at uh, a drum shop in Paris that I know I've been to uh, Le Begator and and it's like the big drum shop in in Paris and I've I know the owner Philippe and basically um, I'm pretty sure that's when he got the China was during that time it's the U, the first UFIP China so my guess is they laid a bunch of tracks down at some point Charlie and Chooch went drum shopping and charlie will has told the story that him and chooch were bombed out of their heads when they when they found that flat ride it was like in a in a used bin of you know traded in symbols that he picked up you know at a, at a song and i think he probably heard the china and went yeah let's try this and then they made a bunch of songs with the china after that um that's my theory yeah it's magic yeah i just sort of you know he found i love that he found that symbol in a used bin that flat ride you know yeah. somebody else's discard you know like but that's the, the magic is right there yeah absolutely yeah he, he's you know and he loves that flat ride it's it's uh it's it's incredible well you know he's got a sound and you know like I said, and each record that they make each studio record they kept turning him up too which i love and the stage drummers kept getting louder and louder and louder like at some point they realized that yeah it really is charlie and his rolling stones <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um but mike i i i'm sorry i i cut you off i think you were going to say something i don't know if you remember what it was going to be what it was but i wanted to address jeff's question and I don't know, we were talking about the flat ride. We're talking about uh, country music. I, I made notes too. We're gonna have to uh, meet up again because I got this big thing here. It says, you know, but talking about the disco, their disco records, and, uh, and there's just a lot, so much to, to talk. That would about. be great, Charlie Watts. Because you know, Char- I mean, great thing about Charlie too is his taste is very wide. You know, like and he liked going clubbing with Mick, which is a weird thing you wouldn't necessarily see because you know, you know, I'm Charlie Watson, very all that Charlie Parker and you know Miles Davis and Louis Armstrong and whatnot. But he was one of the guys that encouraged them to get Prince to open up for him, which you know was you know infamously disastrous, you know, gig at JFK Stadium. But um, you know, he liked all the disco stuff, the dance music. He loved all yeah. the the OJs, the Sound of Philadelphia. You know, where Keith was a little bit like, you know, you know, fine, you guys go to Studio 54 or to whatever the disco they were hanging out in Munich. I'm going to go home and listen to my Peter Tosh record. You know, yeah. you know get out my Elmore James records. Uh, Charlie's got a very wide, wide-ranging task. He's very, very uh, ecumenical that way, you know, which I think is very, very wise. You know, and he's very embracing of the avant-garde too. You're talking about jazz, like, really? You know, like Cecil Taylor, a lot of Mingus stuff. That's not always the most accessible thing. You know, mm-hmm. he's got great ears, Charlie, and that counts for an awful lot. You're right. And he, and he, he's, he's such a walking encyclopedia of all that stuff. I, I, I never, I knew he was a big fan of that music, but until we had a conversation one day about how, how deep he goes with it all. I mean, like, you know, going way back to, you know, the thirties and, and just like, like an encyclopedia of, of just <laughs> He's the only records. guy. I've had the same music on my outgoing voicemail for 20 years. I got my first flip phone and it's a little bit of Charlie Parker. It's what I was listening to at the time. So I was like, okay, make a voicemail. Boop, 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 boop. That sounds good. Haven't changed it. He, when he called me, he was the only person who's ever recognized it. And literally it's like eight seconds of music. And it's not even a saxophone. It's just like a kind of piano gliss. And it's like, and it's literally like, you know, five seconds of music. And he's like, Oh, thank you for putting Charlie Parker on your voicemail. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> he's the only one 20 years. <laughs> That's great, man. And and so, yeah, just and really quick. So he, so Don, Don McCauley got word to Charlie that you'd written this book. 
And yeah, and I think I think so, a few copies got to him by various sources. You know, I think you know once it sort of got into the you know into, into the bloodstream, into the water table, or whatever. It sort of like it got to him and Don. And said, oh, you know, I heard that like you know one of like his grandkid or his kid had gotten a copy for him, and I had sent a couple copies to Don, of course, to send over, and um, I sent the copies over to the Stones management just to make sure everybody was hip to it because you know everybody. I know everybody loves Charlie Watts. It's not you know. Honestly, I read a book about Mick Jagger. It's it does not have the same zork to use one of my my favorite words. You yeah. know, like what Charlie has. You know, um, and we really worked very hard to make it like a really nice book. Um, my publisher Backbeat was really great to me about that. Like I, I designed the book myself largely, or I worked with a couple of guys very closely to make sure that it was like you know, book as object, not just a cheap yeah. bio, and you know, something you wanted to have in your home and feel good about, and you know, and yeah, so that, that all all that stuff, you know, you know goes you know counts for a lot presentation is everything right so sure, yeah. uh he called me up and it was just you know it was great he actually left a message and I, you know I, I called him back and i and he was you know <laughs> you don't know me my name is charlie watts but you know <laughs> i called him back like uh hi mr watts um yeah i would not presume to call him charlie you know mr watts you know <laughs> i'm old school like that um he Although when I met Keith, I called him Keith, so take that with you know, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, everything in its right moment. I, just, I strive to be a mensch. Let's just say that. So, Mr. Watts, my name's and Mike you Wilson, are. and you just left me this message. And he goes, Mike, someone gave me this lovely book that you wrote about me. Thank you so much. That's really terrific, you know? And I said, oh, thank you. And we talked for a moment about... Uh, some, some, you know, some of the old blues guys. I said, I, you know, I like talking about that and, and this, but I thought I was being pranked, though. That's, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was not sure because it's well, you know, it, you know, not likely, but certainly probable that someone could be pranking me. So I had to ask him the secret drummer's question to make sure it was him. But uh, that's that's between me and Charlie. I'm not telling anybody what I asked him. Um, and he, he's like, OK, you know, swordfish. Password is swordfish. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, oh, wow, really? It's Charlie Watts. It's so cool. Because, I mean, yeah. not for nothing. I was thinking about Charlie Watts when I got my first drum set, you know, when I was 13. Uh, and I bought my first drum set with some bar mitzvah money. And I set up in my basement and, you know, I'd play along with brown sugar. And I've been thinking about it like this is not like the other things. You know, this yeah, is just yeah. not like the other things. There's something, and, you know, it's, I, I love playing along with Black Sabbath, you know, the Wizard and War Pigs and all these great fills. And I love Mitch Mitchell. I, got, I learned a lot from that. And, you know, you know, a little bit of Led Zeppelin and later, like, some of the Ramones and, uh, you know, the Sex Pistols and all, all sorts of things, you know. But um, the Stones, man, I was like, there was something else yeah. going on there, you know. I mean, they're the ones that have, like, the zipper and the underpants on the covers, like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, you know, there's a mystique about the band, but the music itself has a mystique about it. Like how yeah. it got created, yep. and how it got to that place. Where a lot of the other things, you could sort of, okay, you, you know, you could figure it out. You, the blueprints could be drawn up. You know, we yeah. tried to diagram a couple of Charlie Watts parts, Kenny Aronoff and I, when he was just like, yeah, this is like insane. It's like it's, it doesn't really follow any known rules. He bends time here, and it's very hard to write it down. But, all those kinds of things. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, for me, it was my sister's five years older than me. And and when I started playing drums the summer of 1972, Exile had just come out. I was 11 years old. And she she was playing that record like nonstop and, and other Stones records too. But that particular record, she had just come out. So she And she saw them that summer at the Boston Garden. And um, 
And it's just by almost like osmosis. I was just, I was hearing it and I was like, what's that song? What's that song? And I went up and bought the 45 for happy and tumbling dice. And so I could play it on my own record player. And, um, but the same thing. And, and, and I just remember, I, I, it's just like, it was almost like what he was doing, just even the, even with, with having no experience really playing the drums yet, I recognized it to be different from other stuff I'd heard other, other, drummers that i've heard just they got it right you know it's like yeah i mean when they're playing they're playing gospel music on that record and you know they're playing like sleazy country music that somehow you know is morphing with their like junkie rock and chuck berryisms and it all came together in like these delta blues and you know and like i say like the rolling stones and right now right now the rolling stones are the last band they're the only band that really connects the dots has a really hot blue bolt of electricity that goes right back to marvin gay and james brown and howling wolf and 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 Bo they literally learned at these guys' feet. They played with Little Richard and they watched him and they learned from right. the source. And, you know, they're not like, you know, some kid who learned to play the blues from listening to Eric Clapton, God forbid. You know, but I hear these tragedies do happen. I mean, these guys, you know, these guys were at the source. They literally learned at Howlin' Wolf's feet. Yeah. Yeah, they were, you know, I mean, they, they literally were on the road with Marvin Gaye and, and Bo Diddley and, and, and all these cats. They know this stuff. They're the last ones that really hold on to that. So it's really amazing. So what you're hearing is authentic. You know, there's yeah. a reason why yeah. other British blues bands, you know, had to overcompensate with like, you know, endless jams or power trio shenanigans and, you know, uh, you know, that, you know, naming names. Yeah, I'm talking to you, Eric Clapton, um, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and Ginger Baker and those guys. It was not the same thing. You know, obviously, where the Stones yeah. are very confident in laying back on it, you know, and not yeah. having yep. to push it through the, the, you know, the ceiling every night. They could have enough confidence in the authenticity of what they were doing, you know, without having to over, you know, over muscle it for, you know, a bunch of, you know, teenage stoners. It, it's very cool. Yeah. No, well said. Well, we have to do another one of these because we've, we've just scraped the surface here. Really, so much I mean, fun. I love to. I love yeah. getting all drum nerdy with you, John. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Like, well, you know, I I do this stuff all day long. So I, I, my wife gets tired of it. So I I have to come down to my drum room and either talk to myself or, or my friends. So well, I'm I'm here. Call anytime. All right. Cool. <laughs> and, uh, this remind everybody, great. please find me on my website, mikeedison.com. Uh, I, I I love. Uh, um, you know, get get the word out, spread the gospel. Um, get two copies, buy one for mom and sis and brother. It's not just for drummers, and uh, I'm glad you deface them. And oh, and I have cool sympathy for the drummer stickers too. So if you order a book from me, you get a sticker too. That's pretty sweet. And again, I'll repeat: if you buy two copies, you can read it two times. So <laughs> that's another look. Are there any other questions before we? And hang on, Mike. I'm going to end the stream, and then we'll uh, we'll we'll say goodbye yeah, in, right in the in the room there. This has been great. Okay. Well, I'm glad everybody enjoyed it. We yeah, could, man. Between the two of us right here, we could we could go on easily five, six, seven hours. So yeah. we're, we're probably going to spare everybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we should, we should nerdy about other, I mean, you know, blues, drums, and disco. And I mean, there's, there's a lot, lot, lot to talk about that all, you know, sort of like, you know, coming out and that's the genius of the stones. Like I said, I mean, I mean, they really do connect to all those things, but like with zero degree of separation. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, for 